I'll be reading from Mark, chapter 6, 1 through 30. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from them. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had been known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard of him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in a dance, she pleased Herod, and his guest and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it on a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I just like to make a make an announcement when I come up. So, um, so sorry for that. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is. Dave, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Tucson. It's great to have you all here this morning. Um, thank you, Jenny. That was a, a lot to read. And as you can see there, we have a lot to cover. So um, just, a, just a heads up, on the front end, I have a stutter. So I always want to make sure that you know what that is before 
I get into it too far, so you're not like, what's going on, the mic, and crazy stuff. So that's all it is. Um, and um, before, as you, again, as I said, we have a ton to cover, but before I get into it, um, I want to, again, make you aware of the class, the first summer class we have coming up, um, not this Wednesday, we had maybe kind of thrown that out there before and said it would be this Wednesday, but it's actually going to be next Wednesday, June 10th. So um, I want to invite you to that. And as you see, it's Christianity 101, basic beliefs. And so you might be thinking like, I know the basic beliefs. We'll prove it. Come and we'll just let you have the mic. No, um, I, I do really though want to encourage all of us to come for a number of reasons. One is, as we'll see even more as we get into the word today, we never get over this stuff. Like, it never gets old. And there's always a, a, a new crevice and a new place in our heart where, where the truth of who God is and who we are and, and what his plans and purposes are for us, there's always a new place for that to go. And, so, and also a new way, perhaps, to learn how to communicate some important biblical truths. And, and lastly, um, I just want to say, too, as... Stephen even said um, that we, 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 we work hard here to break down the, the sacred and secular divide, if you will. Kind of the, okay, that's an academic time, and this is just a, a social time, and that's a, a, a community gathering, and this is a community outreach. And we, we say constantly we, we exist um, to live um, all of life all for Jesus. And so, as you can see here for, from the Instagram um, picture that they took there in the in the first century church. Um, I don't know who everyone is there exactly, but um, they're, they're supposed to be in Solomon's porch, it's called, or Solomon's portico, and that is referred to often as the place where the community of God's people, the early church, would gather together. And, and, and again, you see this sacred and secular divide, this kind of church life and other life kind of broken down. And they're just gathering together, eating and learning and coming together to, to, um, to worship. And, and God is, is, is doing a mighty work through them in that context. And so, um, again, their Instagram picture, you see, um, that's the type of thing we're going to have in these classes. Come together, gather together, eat together, learn together, study together, worship together, have fun together. Um, so, so, again, let me just invite you to that. Um, I'll be teaching it. Oh, also, so you can see the addresses there. The adults are going to be at my house because we don't know all those kids. No, actually, the kids are going to be at my house. The adults are going to be um, on a block away at Paul and Jenny's house. And so um, let me just be clear. It's not daycare. It's we're going to watch your kids. And so, so bring your kids there. Drop them off at that address at my house. And we'll all eat together, and then the adults will go to their house, because they don't have kids yet, and, you know, their house isn't really prepared for that. And we're going to get together and, um, and just spend some good time. And it is in the evening, so dinner's provided, not lunch. So um, all that, just to, just again, make, it, make sure that you know, if you have any questions, ask. So, all right, amen? So hope to see you there. Now we're going to get into it. We have a ton to cover. Before we do, if you don't have a Bible with you, because we're going to be walking through all 30 verses, so if you don't have a Bible with you, um, hold your hand up high and keep it up, and somebody will get you one, and we, if you don't own a Bible, you do now. Keep this. Also, I just want to say, um, si necesitas en español, tenemos. So if you prefer to read the Bible in Spanish... We have uh, the Bible in, in Spanish and want to make sure that you have that and can read that in your heart language. Um, 
sad to say I can't preach in Spanish. That's about all I got. But um, so while they're handing those out and while we're getting in here, let me just quickly recap before we dive into this enormous section of Scripture where we've been. The main point of Mark that the author had said in the very beginning, he says the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's a, it's a proclamation, an announcement, and that good news is revealed shortly after Jesus, God the Son, the King. And then Jesus himself says, the King is here, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what we learn and see is that where Jesus is, there God's kingdom is. And that God's kingdom is breaking in, it's, it's coming in, and, and that the kingdom of this world, as we'll even again learn about some Today, the kingdom of this world takes notice and, and is opposed to the kingdom of God and, and, and the plans and the purposes of God in all creation. And so Jesus is, is, is announcing he's bringing his kingdom. And we see him, not just hear about, but we see him as God the Son. And then we see the nature of his kingdom and what it looks like to follow him in all of life. And then we're challenged. Each of us in the original audience and all those who heard him were challenged to answer this question. Who is Jesus and what do you do with him? Will you follow him? And so I invite us all to come with that question. And, and, and now when we ever are, are faced with such a question, right, we want to ask some things like, well, what does it mean? Again, well, who am I following? And again, we've been looking at that. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the king, God the Son, fully God and fully man. Well, what's he doing? He's bringing his kingdom. And then we rightly ask, well, what does that look like for me? Like, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And what we'll see in this whole section of scripture is um, we'll see the main point is the cost of discipleship. And then we'll see kind of three specific breakdowns in everything that we'll look at. We see faith, we see rejection, and we see death. And so I know all of you are like, sign me up. Sounds great. <laughs> but what we'll learn is that Jesus' kingdom is counterintuitive. Jesus is a counterintuitive king, right? The people of this day and you and me think, king, authority, wielding a sword, come in, make things right, deal with your those who have opposed you in your kingdom and, and take care of them. And, and the king looks this way. And then we've seen throughout. No, no. Jesus' kingship looks a little different. And his kingdom looks different than what we might think. And even following him looks different. Because to be a disciple, that word means a follower of Jesus, is to live in faith and rejection and death and to experience those things. And yet, let me tell you, that's good news. Again, counterintuitively, it's good news. It's the best news. Following Jesus and all that that means is how you and I were designed and created to live. And so um, because our heart's natural disposition is to actually turn away from God, that's what the Bible calls the fall, we need to um, recognize that we don't naturally hear those things and think, yeah, good. So that's why we're going to really dive into this. We're going to walk through that. And um, as I do, I want to pray. I'm going to ask that God the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes and enable us to see how this is good news. That Jesus, the King, has come and is making all things new. And He's calling 
you and me to follow Him. And again, before we pray, I just want to say too, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, we, we don't want to hide anything. <laughs> okay, Jesus doesn't want to hide anything. The, the message is clear. There is a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following Jesus, but, but it's, it's significantly different from what you and I would expect, and it's good. So I, I encourage you and invite you to, to kind of lean in and even say, I don't get it. Like your, your sales pitch isn't really um, sounding so good to me. And also for those of us who are followers of Jesus who, who know that, I, I just want to say um, we, we have a tendency to kind of let our eyes gloss over and our ears shut as we hear about Jesus. And yet we need to recognize that his call to discipleship is counterintuitive. And so we need to kind of pull back some layers and enter in and listen to what it means to follow this good king. So with that, let's pray and we'll get into it. Again, Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning to be together. Um, yeah, Lord, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would be here. That, um, or that, uh, that you would speak through the word. That, that, that my words would not be my own simply, but that you would inform them and lead us all before the person and work and authority of Jesus. And as we're called to respond to him, I pray that you would enable us, that you would do the work in our hearts that needs to be done so that we can rightly see and rightly respond to the person and work and authority and goodness of Jesus. And we do pray all this in his perfect name. Amen. Amen. All right. So just pick up with me right here in um, chapter six, verse one. He, that's Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. So that's a theme that he does. On the Sabbath, where he goes, when he's in a Jewish environment, he goes and teaches in the synagogue. But this is different because it happens to be his hometown. Okay, this is where he's from. And he shows up, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him. So let me just kind of give a little bit of context here. Okay, Jesus is from Nazareth. All right, and 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 um and and he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. Um, even historians today struggle to find a lot about Nazareth. It's a really podunk town, likely about 500 people population. I don't know the population of like Oracle. If you know Oracle, how many of you have even heard of Oracle? Oracle, Arizona. Let's see. See, so not even half the people in here. We have some people who um, are from Oracle. We love Oracle. It's, it's the base of Mount Lemon on the north side. But um, it's a little bit of a podunk town. So if someone had been um, making some serious waves, right? If Jesus, the king, this proclamation of all these incredible things, and he's healed people, and, and, he's, and he's cast out demons, and doing all this kind of stuff... People from his own hometown would know. Okay, so when they say, who is this man? It's not, um, they're not really asking, right? They're not like, who is this guy? Like, they know it's Jesus. It's a pejorative. It's a negative statement of like, essentially, who's this guy think he is? Right? Like, he grew up there. He, he knows these people. And, and they're like, who, who is this? What is he thinking? They're astonished because they're intrigued, but their response is not like excitement or faith. In fact, for them, their response is faithlessness. 
And so they, they hear these things, and let, let's just because we might miss a couple things that are said. In the beginning, he says, who is this? And they say, um, is this not Jesus, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and then the brother of, and it says those, okay, so again, they know him. They know his family. They know this stuff. Well, because Mark is writing to a broad audience, there's a Jewish um, a Jewish audience, and there's a Gentile or a Roman audience, and so a Roman audience would hear this. It would see the the a, a carpenter, and they'd be like, "Oh, that's a blue collar job. We don't we don't respect that." Okay, so there's a, there's a, there's an intentional showing of who Jesus is, and there's like a yeah, we don't we don't really take him very seriously. He's a blue collar, you know. He he's not someone really to look up to. Is this not Jesus the carpenter? And then so a Jewish audience, though, they would respect being a carpenter. That's a, that's a worthy trade. They would be like, yeah, carpenter, no big deal. But just so the point would, would hit for them, too, they say, is this not Jesus the son of Mary? Now that's like, oh, no, you didn't. Like, okay, that's, um, Mary is great. There, Mary would be honored and revered for us. But in a Jewish context, to associate someone with their mother would be making a, a, a statement. Because in a Jewish context, you would say, is this not Jesus ben Joseph or Jesus bar Joseph? That bar ben means the son of. And you would be associated with your father. And that would say something about who you are. And of course, they don't rightly recognize, is that not Jesus bar the, ben, the son of God, God the Father? They don't even associate that. But they don't even associate him with his earthly stepfather, Joseph. They say, is this not Jesus, the son of Mary? Likely making a slight at Mary, the fact that he was born illegitimately before she was even married to Joseph. Um, so, so either way, there is disrespect here. Okay, there's not reverence for Jesus. He goes home to his hometown, the, home, the hometown hero. And we see again these themes, faith, rejection, and death. But rather than faith in his own hometown, you see faithlessness. Right? Let, let's, they say, who is this? Let me remind you, the author's main question that you and I are invited to ask. Who is this Jesus? And how do you respond to him? That's a serious, important question. And yet they don't get it. They don't want to get it. They conveniently write Jesus off. Oh yeah, we know him. We know this guy. We, we know his whole history, his past. So they, they, they miss it. They choose faithlessness, though Jesus remains faithful. Though he goes to his hometown, though he preaches and teaches, and we'll see later, he even heals some people. But they choose faithlessness, and they reject him. Again, you see even Jesus, even God the Son, the one who has healed people, who's done all kinds of incredible things, he's rejected. People in his own hometown just kind of write him off because he's too familiar. Look at me let, me, let me ask you a question. Has Jesus become too familiar for you? Has, has the gospel, the good news of Jesus, become so familiar that you hear these things and you just kind of rattle, yeah, Jesus, God the Son, died on a cross. You know, you, we just can kind of rattle off these things, but we find that um, as you get to know the character and the person of God more and more, as you get to see Jesus rightly, you, you get to know Him, but that, that never results in necessarily comfort. Okay, that, that, that never, never allows you to be complacent. But, but these people are. So they reject 
Jesus. And there is a sense of death. We'll get into death a lot more, and you see this. But even in Jesus' own life, he experiences a death of a kind in his own hometown. He goes back, the death of an identity, the death of some dreams, right? A small town. These people knew him, and yet he experiences their rejection. He experiences um, uh, uh, the, the death of being welcomed and accepted and, and rightly worshipped. And so then Jesus goes on, and now he, he sends out his followers. So again, the king, bringing his kingdom, counterintuitively, he now sends out this kind of podunk group of followers to, to carry on his message, to bring in his kingdom as kingdom heralds. He sends out his own followers. And it says there right in verse 7, pick up with me. And he called the twelve, these are his apostles, and he began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And and so you see, again, a theme. I just want to break in here. He sends them out in community. He sends them out in twos. God is a communal God. He's not just like a a smart, you know, thinking, okay, how am I going to get the most kind of bang for my buck? I'll send out each of these 12 to different places all over by themselves. But no, because restored community is absolutely central to the kingdom of God, to the gospel, to the good news. He sends his followers out together because the message and the context that they're bringing their message is absolutely important. Okay, so we can't miss that. They're only able to cover fewer places, but they're going in such a way that that even how they're going in community, in twos, is sending a message about God and his purposes to restore brokenness, to restore our, our, our propensity to choose isolation and to go out as individuals. Okay, so, so that's, again, there are a lot of intentional messages here. And then you see faith right away in verses 8 and 9. How does Jesus send out his followers? In verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. Not to put on two tunics. So you see, he's calling them to faith. Right? He, he sends them out so that they have to depend on him in every way. He, he sends them out. Yeah, don't take an extra, don't take a change of clothes. Right? Don't take extra things. Don't plan it all out. Trust me. God's like, I, I, I got you. I'm sending you out. I'm going to take care of you. Depend on me. Again, this is counterintuitive. And so you see faith here. You see that these people, his followers, are faithful. They're, they're faithful to depend on him. They don't even stay in, the, in, in, the, in, in all these different houses. No, they go and they, and they trust that God will provide. And then you see rejection. I'm going to spend some time here. Because he, he, he basically tells them, you're going to be rejected. All right, let me tell you plainly. Okay, we're calling you. I'm calling you right now. Who is Jesus and how do you respond to him? And let me be absolutely clear. You will experience rejection if you follow Jesus. He says it right here. He says, whenever you enter a house, stay with them. And then he goes on in verse 11. He says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And we like to read that. And be like, yeah, okay, we are going to experience rejection, 
But this is God's way of saying, give him the finger, kind of subtly as you walk away. Right? Like, shake the dust off your feet, and kind of, that's our way of like, yeah, not everyone's going to receive you, not everyone's going to accept you, and when they don't, kind of turn away, shake off the dust on your feet, and just to be blunt, it's like saying, all right, he even held it. Right? Some, sometimes people feel that. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a sent one, heralding his kingdom, the promise is a lot of people aren't going to be like, yeah, that's good news, thanks, tell me more. Some are going to be like, no, no thanks, I'm, I'm good. And so we want to read this and be like, okay, cool, so at least we get to save a little bit of dignity. Right? We can shake the dust off our feet. We can be like, fine. But that's not at all what's going on here. That posture is like saying, hey, I, I get it. Um, you don't want to hear this right now. I just want to recognize that there's more to this conversation, but I know right now might not be the time or the place. Here's my numbers. Hand me a text. Okay, this conversation isn't done. Let's talk more. When you want to have that conversation, if you have more questions, that's what it means as a testimony against them. It is saying, I, I want to be clear, we, we're not done here. You don't get everything I'm saying, but, but um, let's, let's leave the door open for more conversation. Because hear me, the counterintuitive nature of the good news of Jesus, the counterintuitive truth of His gospel, of His good news, is yes, you will experience rejection, but you are now completely free from having to reject back. Because God Almighty so, so fully welcomes you and receives you, because your identity is so secure in Him, because He loves you and accepts you so fully, you're now free to not return rejection with rejection. Again, we need to hear this because we think, yeah, 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 blow it off, blow them off, give them the finger, tweet about it, write something on Facebook, you know, whatever it might be. And that is not at all the gospel. In our marriages, in our jobs, in our homes, all over the place, we tend to carry a posture that says, I got to protect mine, right? I got to keep some dignity a little bit. And on some level, I'm surely I'm not called to fully just accept this kind of rejection. Surely I need to have some kind of an out to preserve my identity. And no, the message is no. You don't have any out because you don't need an out. Because of the gospel, because of your acceptance through faith in Jesus by Almighty God, you are now free to completely die to self, to be rejected to perhaps feel humiliation, to feel like you have no more dignity left and you're free to not pile that back on your accuser or whomever it might be because of the gospel. Do you hear that? Do you get that? Or hopefully we see we need to be reminded of this good news because we're so prone, so prone to be like, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't pursue my wife right now because I don't feel respected by her. I can't um, go over to my neighbor and say I'm sorry for whatever it is. Because man, they, they disrespected me. And i got to preserve a little bit of dignity. Whatever the context, I hope your mind is going there somewhere. You see, no, the good news of Jesus is you're free not to reject. Though you are rejected. And then again, there's a death. We see a death. I'm going to keep moving on here. But you see a sense of death. And I want to recognize that. There's a death of reputation 
right? There's a death of, of integrity as this world defines it to be. There is some kind of a death. And as a follower of Jesus, as one of his disciples, you will experience that. And that's the reality. And you see that in his disciples. They go to towns. They have to ask people to provide for them. They have to trust that God will meet their needs. And then the author Mark wants to continue. Okay, I've got to pick up the pace here a bit. But we continue here um, and we get a Markin sandwich. All right, let me remind you of what that is. We've seen it a few times. Right, this, it's a literary technique that, that authors would give where they would like sandwich a main point in a story with, with either one or two similar stories on either end of it. So here you see um, the author is talking about the disciples, the followers of Jesus. He's continuing to prove this point of faith, rejection, and death. And he kind of hits the pause button on the disciples, on the, the 12 apostles. And he'll pick up with it in verse 30. But he sandwiches that with this really big chunk. It's like a protein sandwich, as one guy said. Um, it's a thick chunk about John the Baptist. Okay, and I was going to read all the way through it, but I don't think we need to. I'm just going to walk through it because we, Jenny already read through it for us. And it's a big chunk. But basically, in verses 17 through um, 29, you see John the Baptist. One of Jesus's, it's actually a, a distant relative of Jesus. He's in the very beginning of Mark. We see John. And he's actually the first one who says, Behold, the Son of God. And he says elsewhere, he must increase and I must decrease. And now we see in this exchange, if you recall, I'll just explain it, right? You had Herod, who's a king, and he's having a party. And he put John in jail because Herod's new wife, who was the wife of his brother, and Herod now took her. He swooped in and took his wife. And there's all kinds of scandalous nature there. And John the Baptist has called him out for it. And so Herod, though, is still intrigued, right? It says he listens with gladness, like a lot of people will do. What is this, Jesus? What is this spirituality? I'm intrigued. Tell me more. So he's intrigued by John the Baptist, but he's in jail. John the Baptist. So Herod's having a party. They're getting crazy. He's got all kinds of friends there. And, um, and his like stepdaughter, Herodias' daughter, is pretty. And he says, oh, will you dance for us, for our guests? I don't know what kind of dance this is. I, I don't want to entertain that. But whatever it is, it's a seductive dance to some degree. And he's entertained. And, and the whole thing unravels and he makes a promise. He's so overwhelmed with his lust, with his passion. He says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she conspires with her mom and is like, John the Baptist's head on a platter. Right? Her mom didn't say on a platter, but she kind of took it to that next level. It's like on a platter and it comes. And I don't, I mean, that's a gross picture. His head literally comes on a platter. And they're like, great, thank you. That's what we wanted. And it says that Herod was kind of bummed out about it. He was discouraged, but he did it anyway. And now what we're going to do is we walk through this little section. We still see this dominant theme. Remember the overarching reality, the cost of discipleship, what it means. And you see this picture of faith rejection and death contrasting between John, John the Baptist, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, and Herod, someone who's intrigued, someone who's entertained. So we're just going to walk through this and see how each of these two deals with faith, rejection, death. John, you see faith. Yeah, you see that. He trusts God. 
he trusts that God's kingdom is coming. And you see that he's still kind of confused because, again, the counterintuitive nature of this kingdom is not, he's not like, yeah, at some point, Jesus is going to come swooping in with his sword. He's going to save me from my jail. Right? He doesn't know. He, he knows that the kingdom is coming, but he's like, I'm sitting here in a jail. Um, but he he trusts the character and the power of God in some way. You see faith. But in Herod, you see faithlessness. Obviously, he's unfaithful. He takes his brother's married you know, wife. He, he marries her. He's not faithful as a friend, right? He's kind of entertained by John the Baptist. They have some kind of a relationship, but you see faithlessness. What you see here most clearly, let me just... I don't know where everyone's at in this room. But you see a clear picture in Herod of the, the, the absolute downward spiral of sin. Oh, it seems so good. Right? I've got my, my little spiritual guru over here on the side. I've got John the Baptist. He entertains me. But right now I'm at a party and, you know, it's fun. We're getting crazy. Hey, this girl's going to dance for us. Yeah, and, and it leads to murder. Right? You, you see that theme throughout God's word. His lust, he, he, gives, he gives it a little bit of room. He's entertained. You see all kinds of stuff. You see faithlessness. You see where sin will always lead. Oh, it's innocent. Come on, this girl, she's dancing. No big deal, right? We're at a party. It's fun. No, it, it will always. Sin will always lead to destruction, to death, to faithlessness. And then you see rejection. John, you see rejection. Most pointedly, John rejects sin. John rejects temptation. He could so easily just say, all right, for this time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it slide. I'm going to apologize or I'm going to whatever it is. Like, right? I could have more impact for God's kingdom if I'm not in this jail cell. But no, you see, he rejects temptation. He rejects fear. And ultimately, he lays down his life for it. But you see John rejecting faithlessness, rejecting temptation, rejecting all these things, even in the face of critique and scorn. Let me say, too, just as you see this, that in this promise that as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, you will experience rejection. Some people in Christianity today, some people will kind of take that on as like a mantra or as an excuse to be a jerk or to be weird or to, or, to, or to just be like, yeah, it's us against them. It's us against the world and we're going to do whatever we can. We're going to be offended. We're going to be offensive. We're going to reject everyone else and they're going to be offended and that's all right, right? We're in a war. We're in a battle. We'll, no, we're promised that the cross, the message of the cross, the message of, of discipleship, that, that, that through death you have life, that, that you have no hope before a holy and righteous God if not for the substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of Jesus. That's offensive. You are going to be rejected because of that. But you don't take that on. You understand that the message of Jesus is going to be offensive. But even in John, you don't go out of your way to be offensive. Yet still, he experienced rejection. Now, Herod. What about Herod? In Herod, you see something I suspect a lot of us are vulnerable to. I certainly am. You see a fear of rejection. 
You see Herod's fear of being rejected by other people compel him to ultimately rejecting God. He, it says, right? He, it says here, in, in the end there, it says, and, um, and, and, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but, I'm in verse 26, because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He's got some influential friends here. He's got some people that he doesn't want to upset. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to mess up his reputation. He's afraid about what they'll think of him. Let me just confess to you as a pastor. I am so, I love, I'm like a golden retriever. I've shared that with you guys before. I love to be loved, right? There's like a country song in there somewhere. But I, I love when people like me. I love to have friends. I like to be a friendly person. And that could lead me. That could lead us as a church. That could lead us in our interactions to maybe water down the message, to bring a more palatable, easy to swallow message, to to change those points of discipleship, you know, faith, rejection, and death, to make, you know, put a little different spin so it's so you'll be happy. But, but we see the effect. You see the, the consequence of sin. You see that often there's that point. Am I going to fear that these other people are going to reject me and is that going to drive me in all that I do? Or am I going to understand that because God accepts me, I'm now free to not live in fear. I'm now free to forsake rejection. Sadly and tragically, you see in Herod, he basically rejects God because of his fear that he will be rejected by others, by humans. And then lastly, you see death. Ultimately, Herod chooses death. He chose death for John, right? He says, yeah, go ahead, kill this guy. And then you also see that he um, chooses death for himself. How, how tragic that, 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 that Herod, I think eventually understands he's, he's seeking to preserve his life, the life that he enjoys, and in so doing, he embraces and chooses death, life apart, eternity apart from God Almighty. He chooses death. By seeking life, he gets death, and yet in John the Baptist, you see, he literally lays down his life for his faith. Our Brothers and sisters, people who call upon the name of the Lord all over the world are experiencing this. They're laying down their life because they are so committed not to reject the God who has welcomed them. And you and I, in many ways, hopefully will not be called to lay down our lives. I I don't know that, like, physically, but in some way we will. I don't know how, but death is absolutely central, whether it's the death of a dream, an identity, a job, perhaps a family member. Death is very real, and we know that. We don't want to water that down. And yet, at the end of the day, we know that through death we have life. Okay, that, that's the truth. That's the good news. This is counterintuitive because the message here, the message of this author, Mark, is this. There are little pockets of Christians all over the place when he wrote this. Like here, perhaps not even as big as us here today. These groups of followers of Jesus would be gathered together. They would be facing all kinds of hardship. And this would be a good news, a message of what you're experiencing, it's par for the course. 
It's the way God designed this to be. But here, hear me, you're not alone. Others are there with you. This is the way it is supposed to be. And, and I suspect that you and I read this as we kind of come to a, to, to a close. We read this whole thing. We see faith, rejection, death. We see John the Baptist. And we think, oh yeah, yeah, I should try pretty hard to be like John the Baptist. I, I should try to be a good Christian. I should, I should work hard to take on faith. I should work hard to reject sin, to reject temptation. All those things are good. But our, our, our main point, our takeaway should be, yeah, I should, take, I should be prepared. I should die to self. Um, I should be prepared for that. Let's go. But, but no, what you see here in all of this is a, is a picture taking us to Jesus. Because in Jesus, you most perfectly see faith, rejection, and death. You see that Jesus was faithful to give his life on the cross. Though you and I are naturally faithless, so we choose life apart from God. Jesus is faithful to lay down his life for those who he calls to be his own. You see that Jesus is faithful to the Father. The will of God the Father to come and to do what he was called to do. To bring in the kingdom by laying down his life. You see faithfulness in Jesus. Though you and I naturally choose faithlessness. Jesus is faithful. You see rejection Jesus obviously rejected sin. He's perfect. He rejects the temptation to sin. He, he rejects the temptation to save his own life. But instead, he lays down his life for you and me. You see, Jesus experiences a rejection unlike one that you and I will ever have to fully know. As he hung on the cross, Jesus, out of his own mouth, looking to his Father, his heavenly Father, he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? As God rejects sin, the sin that had been poured on His own Son, Jesus experienced rejection so that you and I can be called children. So that you and I can be accepted by the God who we have offended. By the God who we've sinned against. By placing your faith in Jesus, you now get acceptance, though He took on rejection. And then death. You see, Jesus laid down his life on the cross. He died. Again, you and I in this room, a lot of us have experienced death. We will experience a death of a kind as disciples no matter what. All of us. But through death, there is life. The counterintuitive, God turning his kingdom on its head, turning our paradigms on their head by the king laying down his life. He now established eternal life once and for all. Through death, there is life. And that is good news. The good news for every one of us, whatever kind of death we will experience in our life, the good news is death no longer wins. Though, as some have said, the shadow of the cross, the shadow of death is cast over the entire book of Mark, the reality of the empty tomb defines it all. The reality that death no longer wins, that, that, that God has put death to death through the death of His Son on the cross. And the last verse, just to complete the sandwich that I want to read, because this says a lot actually for us. It says in verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So 
Jesus calls his followers away. And what you've seen here is something that is true for us today. You see the scattering and the gathering of Jesus' people, of his disciples, of his followers. As a follower of Jesus, we will experience those things. Faith, rejection, death, we're called. That is going to define our lives as followers of Jesus in some way. In the most positive way through Jesus, his faithfulness. The rejection that he experienced and the death through which he brings life. And we need to be reminded of those things. And so did his followers. They went out. They carried out his message. Hear me, guys. We are not a Sunday church kind of Christianity. Just come get your church on Sunday and then go and do your life. Whatever you want to do. Go on along, along the way. No, all of life is all for Jesus. And we're sent out to live that out in the context of community. We're sent out to live out lives of faith, heralding the kingdom of God through our demonstration, through our lives, through our proclamation in all of life. We're called to do this. And we come together week in and week out with great purpose to gather together, to be reminded of the good news. There's incredible intentionality in everything that we do here. Right? You experience it today. It's called the liturgy. As we gather together, we're reminded of the good news of who God is and His character. We're called together to come before Him. And then there's a time where we individually and corporately confess our sin and we recognize, God, we, we, we're not worthy to gather before You. We're broken. We have sinned throughout this, work, this week in thought, word, and deed. And then we, we're called to sit under the gospel, the good news, to, to, to peel back the layers that can harden because we can become so inoculated. Because like Herod and like Jesus' own hometown, we can kind of become complacent. And so we sit under the gospel week in and week out. And then we respond in faith and in worship and in taking communion together, which Paul will explain in a moment. And then we're sent out again. The benediction. As we do every week, we are sent out in some way as God's people to carry on His work as His kingdom heralds. So let me say, I don't know what this looks, okay? I don't know what it looks like for you, but I ask you to consider who is Jesus and what does it look like for you to follow Him? Faith, rejection, and death. But the good news is that He has taken that on Himself so that now you can live all of life as one of his disciples, as one of his followers, in light of the good news of who he is and what he's done and what he's doing. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray and respond. Lord Jesus, thank you that we don't just look to you as an example. We don't just read these stories and think, yeah, I should work harder and try harder and do a little bit better. I should be more like John the Baptist. I should be more like the apostles. No, what we see, Jesus, is you. Perfectly faithful, though we're faithless. Rejecting sin and temptation and then experiencing rejection from God the Father. We see you taking on death. Laying down your life so that you can give us life. So that the reality of death no longer defines us. So that we now can live life to its fullest as your followers. So even, again, this title of this sermon, The Cost of Discipleship, we recognize most fully that you have paid that price. Lord, that cost is not fully a cost, Lord, to us, because of the price that you have already paid. 
So Lord, I pray now that as we respond, I pray that anyone here who does not know you, who has not followed you, who maybe has felt rejection, experienced rejection, who wonders what it looks like to put their faith in you, who's been defined by death in some form, Lord, I pray they would respond to you in faith and in worship and in adoration and with their lives because of the good news of who you are. Lord Jesus, for all of us, I pray that we would be reminded of our tendency to become complacent. Lord, even now to come before your table and to be reminded of life in its full as your disciples, as your followers. And that is good news. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.